Hello, my name is Ian Alexander, and with me is Martha McGuinness, Chair of the Department of Linguistics at the University of Victoria. And it is our privilege today to spend some time with a distinguished teacher, a writer, thinker, linguist, cognitive scientist, political theorist, commentator, Noam Chomsky. Um, we are going to explore further some of the themes that Professor Chomsky raised in a talk earlier this year in the series Values for a New World. That series was presented by the John Albert Hall Lectures at the Center for Studies in Religion and Society here at UVic. Professor Chomsky, it's so great to see you again. Thank you very much for agreeing to speak with us. Pleased to be with you. Uh, you've reminded us many times that humankind faces two seemingly intractable, urgent existential threats, nuclear war, and the climate catastrophe. And I suppose we could add to that a third now, an apparently permanent global pandemic. And yet you also say that you remain optimistic about the future of humanity. How can you square those things? How can this be with so much evidence to the contrary? Well, it's quite simple. Uh, kind of a version of Pascal's wager. Uh, we have two choices. We can decide to give up hope and help ensure that the worst will happen, or we can grasp the opportunities that exist, and they do exist, whatever, however we assess them. Uh, we do have answers to these questions, all of them. We know how to proceed, so we can grasp the opportunities that exist and uh, perhaps uh, escape catastrophe and even make a better world. There's not much of a problem making that choice. One of your fellow um, contributors to the series uh, here in Victoria, Thomas Homer Dixon, uh, recently wrote a book called Commanding Hope. And he argues that if hope is going to be meaningful, it has to be grounded in a, in a crystal clear, unvarnished understanding of the reality of the situation. Would you, would, would you agree with that? And if so, how does one balance, um, uh, optimize between sounding a warning without scaring people into passivity or despair? Well, I think any warning should be accompanied by a strong affirmation of what I just said. We do have answers. The answers are known. In the case of nuclear weapons, the answer is obvious. Move to get rid of them. It can be done. Uh, it can certainly take steps towards that. There are very concrete steps right on the agenda, right in the front pages now, in fact. With regard to uh, global warming, uh, destroying the environment, habitat destruction, and so on, there are concrete detailed proposals as to how to emerge from this impending catastrophe. Actually, uh, we saw two versions of how to proceed at uh, Glasgow a week ago. One version inside the halls was, let's have some pleasant rhetoric and then drive towards catastrophe. Uh, the other message out in the streets was tens of thousands of young people saying, we'd like to have a world in which 
we and our children can survive. And there are ways to do it. So uh, that always has to be made obvious. And then the choice is obvious. Work harder to compel the guys inside the halls to live up to the pleasant rhetoric they're quite good at. I want to, ex we want to explore with you in a little while um, further the, the contrast between the corridors of power and the streets. Um, and, and I don't think there's much doubt about um, where you would align yourself. But just before we, we get to that and some, some questions on the linguistics front as well, I, I was reading, you've said more than once, I think that there have been uh, earlier times of crisis and difficulty in, in human societies where there has been uh, hope and optimism. And you, you, you name, for example, the dirty thirties as, as one example. Um, why do you think there is not that much hope these days and so much despair and is one of the issues um, increasing polarization, um, demonization of the other, um, inability to have um, civil discourse across differences. Is, is that part of the problem, do you think? I think that's a symptom, not the problem. And the polarize, talk about polarization is somewhat misleading. If you take the United States, which is extreme example, uh, what has happened is that the Democratic Party has maintained its centrist, uh, mildly social democratic uh, position on the international, by international standings, it's kind of center right. Uh, there was a, a, an editor of the Financial Times, world's leading business general, journal, uh, Rana Forohar, uh, quipped recently that if Bernie Sanders was in Germany, he could be running on the conservative Christian Democrat platform, which in fact is correct. He's calling for universal health care, free higher education, uh, maternal leave, you know, things that are just taken for granted in most of the world. And the United States considered so radical that can barely mention the words. That's the Democrats. You go to the Republicans, they've gone off the spectrum. They're not a parliamentary party anymore. They're what has been described as a uh, radical insurgency. This is centrist description. Uh, you look again at the Financial Times, conservative journal, their leading commentator, highly regarded, Martin Wolf, uh, recently had a column in which he said, the Republicans are leading the world towards, he said, autocracy, others say fascism. In fact, there's a kind of an inversion of what happened in the 1930s. In the 1930s, which I can remember very well, the, uh, the United States, uh, there, were, there was a severe crisis, the depression much more severe than any today. Uh, there was a sense of optimism, as you said. Uh, there was labor activism, CIO organizing, uh, militant actions, mildly, rather supportive administration, political debate, lively. And there were two ways out. Europe chose fascism. 
the United States chose social democracy. The New Deal measures were an enormous contribution to American life, but also were the model that was followed by Europe in the post-war world. So there were two ways out. Now it's virtually inverted. The United States is paving the way towards a kind of proto-fascism may go beyond. Europe is hanging on to the tattered remnants of its social democratic achievements. Well, a lot of irony in this for someone who's watched it for over 90 years, you know, it is a kind of inversion. But to go back to the polarization, the, po the polarization is basically the Republican Party going off in, into outer space. And it shows up uh, not only the leadership, the leadership is indescribable. They are utter cowards uh, rushing to Mar-a-Lago to get the blessing of the God who they hate but have to worship because the voting base uh, uh, will go after their throats if they don't worship the God. It's a sign of, uh, I mean, if, all you have to do is look at what's happening in Congress right now, right now. Uh, Biden's programs, which are better than I expected them to be, would move the United States a few steps towards joining the civilized world. A little bit of improvement in the disgraceful health system, which is this international scandal, uh, beginning of some limited amount of child care support, which you have almost everywhere, a uh, few other things like that. Republicans are 100% opposed to everything, even though they know perfectly well that their own constituents are in favor of it. It's a very interesting situation developing, shown in careful polling. If you ask about the provisions in the Build Back Better Act, the, the act that's being debated in Congress, you ask people about the provisions in it individually, they're strongly in favor of them. If you ask people their opinions about the bill, a lot of opposition, they think the bill is going to harm them. They're in favor of the provisions, but they're opposed to the bill with the provisions. You look a little farther, the next poll shows they don't know what's in the bill. What they know is what they're hearing from Tucker Carlson on Fox News, uh, which tells them it's an effort by a democratic communists to establish a, you know, a rule by a satanic cult of pedophiles and so on, that's going to harm you. Well, that's the polarization. Uh, you look at the Republican positions, they've established a few red lines, as they say, things that cannot be touched. One of them is their sole legislative achievement during the Trump years, a uh, tax bill, which economist Joseph Stiglitz called the 2017 Donor Relief Act. It's a gift, an outright gift to the super rich 
and the corporate sector, stabbing everyone else in the back. Of course, Trump's worshipers don't know that because you're not going to hear that on Fox News, okay, or from the leadership, including people like Susan Collins, who likes to present herself as a moderate. You're not going to hear that. You have to worship the God. So they don't hear it. Uh, the other red line is you cannot fund the Internal Revenue Service. Internal Revenue Service in the pre-neoliberal period before Reagan, the IRS used to seriously investigate tax cheating. Tax cheating is almost entirely the super rich, the very rich. Nobody else can do it. You know, they take your pay from your payroll. But the very rich can hire uh, corporate, law, you know, fancy corporate lawyers who can figure out arcane ways to uh, make sure you don't pay any taxes. Well, the IRS used to go after that. Since Reagan, they've been cut back. And the red line of the Republican Party is you cannot fund them. Because if you fund them, they're going to find the tens of billions, if not trillions of dollars stolen from the public by rich and corporate tax cheats. Those are the Republican red lines. Another Republican red line is you can't have precautions against COVID. You can't have distancing regulations. You can't have masking regulations. You can't uh, require people to be vaccinated if they're going to work in a meat packing plant uh, two inches away from each other. Can't do that. That's an intrusion on our sacred liberties. Okay. You can't believe in global warming. Uh, that's just a Chinese hoax. In fact, during the four years in which Trump was in office, uh, con concern for global warming the wording of the polls is belief that it's a serious issue, declined 20%, okay? So we have to race towards self-destruction in the interest of profit for, the, for our masters, the corporate sector and the ultra-rich who we serve with uh, passion, uh, thanks to the clown who poses as a friend of the people while he works day and night for their interests. And we have to ensure that nothing is done that in the least bit harms the sector of the society that matters. The top fraction of 1% has approximately doubled their wealth during the post Reagan years. Democrats have cooperated with this, I should say. The Clinton-Obama Demo Democrats are basically like the uh, Tony Blair New Labour in England, what were called Thatcher light here, they're Reagan light. So they've helped along uh, the especially younger base of the Democratic Party is moderately social democratic Sanders supporters. As I say, they're in Europe, they would be considered maybe moderate social democrats. Uh, here, that's considered to be a polarizing. Can't go that far left. How can we have 
maternal leave. Can't imagine that. Take the second biggest uh, country in the hemisphere, Brazil, not known as a paragon of uh, left uh, fanaticism. A four months paid maternal leave, two months more optional under social security. We can't have that. In fact, the United States is alone in denying any maternal leave except for a couple of Pacific islands where the question doesn't arise. But you're not gonna go beyond that. Republicans 100% are proposed and a couple of right-wing far-right Democrats who are called moderate in the media are joining them to block anything. Well, that's the polarization. We should be careful in describing it. The US is the richest country in history, has incomparable advantages that no other country can even dream of. Uh, if you look at social justice measures, it's down at the bottom of the OECD. And there's a reason in the United States does differ from other countries. One of them is that it's always had a highly class conscious business class, which is con constantly fighting a bitter class war relentlessly. Sometimes they're beaten back, then they come back fighting. Last 40 years have been a bonanza for them. I think I don't recall if I mentioned this last time, but there has been a good study of the effect of the 40 years of Reaganite uh, extremism supported by Clinton and Obama in their own ways. Uh, their estimate is that during these 40 years, the transfer of wealth, I'd call it highway robbery, but they're polite. The transfer of wealth from the lower 90% of the population middle class, working class, uh, they estimate that at almost $50 trillion going to the top fraction of 1%, mostly if you look at the details. Well, that's class war, effective class war. You look up neoliberalism in the dictionary, you get some nice phrases about uh, wonders of the market, uh, everyone has a chance and so on. You wanna know what neoliberalism really is? Bitter class war and very successful class war. And you have in the United States, one political party which wants to intensify it, a second political party which is split between the Clinton Obama party managers who wanna do it lightly and the large part of the voting base which says we'd like to join the world. That's the polarization. It's a pretty damning analysis. Um, let's shift gears for a minute. I think Martha wants to ask you some questions in the field of linguistics. I do. Morning, Noam. So you've compared the human faculty of language to a snowflake, both in its perfection and in its infinite variability. So do you think language makes humans fundamentally different from and superior to other species? 
very different, but not superior. I live in the desert, Tucson. Right behind me are desert areas. Take a walk in the desert, uh, lots of desert ants. They have a brain that you can't even see with a microscope. They can carry out cognitive feats that are impossible for humans. So they're far superior to us. Uh, they can, I mean, a desert ant can wander around the desert randomly till it finds some food and then head straight back to the nest in a straight line. Humans can't do that. We can do it with complicated instruments maybe, but they're doing it in their brain and many other things that are way beyond this. Uh, animals have their own cognitive capacities. Humans have basically two dramatic properties that differentiate us radically from the rest of the animal world. One of them, basically what we're doing now, that's two things, uh, thinking, planning, using language to formulate our thoughts and express them and even reach other people with them. There's nothing remotely analogous in the animal world, not even a, a hint. Furthermore, it seems to be a, a fairly recent development. The uh, archaeological, paleoanthropological record is skimpy, so you have to be cautious. But it looks now, from all we know, as if there is no meaningful symbolic activity prior to the appearance of humans maybe a scratch on a bone or something like that, but essentially nothing. And not long after the appearance of humans in long and evolutionary time, you start getting incredibly rich symbolic activity, cave paintings, complex uh, evidence of complex social life and so on. So it looks as if something happened along with Homo sapiens, the emergence of Homo sapiens a couple hundred thousand years ago, which is nothing in evolutionary time. Seems that something suddenly happened, which gave rise to an organism which has the capacities of thought and language. They can bark, but they can't discuss this. <laughs> they, uh, um, and uh, it hasn't changed since. There's no evidence that there's any change since. There's genomic evidence that humans began to separate at least 150,000 years ago. And as far as anyone knows, there's no cognitive difference whatsoever among the various human groups in the world. So it looks like, it looks as though along with whatever gave rise to anatomically modern humans, also gave rise to unique cognitive capacities, which haven't changed since. Uh, this is not really surprising from an evolutionary point of view. If you take a look at the theory of evolution, not, not you know, the pop Darwinian theory, but the actual theory of evolution, the, uh, uh, there, there are basically three stages in evolution. 
The first stage is just some random disruption in what exists, like a mutation or like uh, a bacterium uh, swallowing another microorganism by accident. Crucial step in development of life happened once, maybe several times. Uh, and it led to the formation of uh, complex cells, eukaryotic cells, which is all complex life. Uh, that's the first step. Something happens, random. Then Mother Nature comes in and she tries to find the simplest solution to how to reconstruct the uh, whatever the disruption caused. Well, that's an empirical claim that nature finds the simplest solution. It's basically Galileo's uh, assertion that nature is, that, uh, is simple and it's the task of the scientist to prove it. It's an empirical claim, but it's been so fully substantiated in hundreds of years that it's safe to assume it. It's basically Leibniz's law of least effort nature finds the simplest way. So that's the second step in evolution, the most interesting and important step. Then comes the third step, which is kind of winnowing of the various organisms that made it through the second step, which ones have a rep reproductive advantage. Those are the ones that'll tend to be around, the others will disappear. That's natural selection. Well, in the case of humans, seems pretty clear that we never reach the third step. Uh, the, it, it's recent, uh, the, it, partly the reason may just be the recency, but partly the reasons may be that the second step created a system that is so elegant and tightly integrated that it's all or nothing. If you take one piece out of it, it all falls apart. And I think my own feeling is we're, coming to see maybe something like that. Uh, to be a little more technical, the strong minimalist thesis was proposed about 25 years ago, mainly as uh, just something to think about, something impossible. Uh, the idea that nature actually picked the simplest possible uh, faculty of language, given uh, the disruption caused the appearance of a computational principle of recursive enumeration, a way of generating infinitely many thoughts, basically. That had to happen once, instantly. There's no way for that to happen other than instantly. Uh, just like uh, having the num understanding the numbers. If you understand them only up to seven, you don't know the numbers. It's the same as knowing nothing. So it's either all or nothing had to come in a single step, maybe along with language. So this first step, the, ran the random event was whatever caught, gave rise to the capacity for dealing with discrete infinity, recursive enumeration. Then mother nature came along and maybe decided to conform to, this, to the strong minimalist thesis. So maybe language really is perfect perfect example, the optimal way of dealing with recursive enumeration.
couple of years ago, that sounded totally crazy. Now it sounds crazy to only 99% of the profession, but I think it may well be right. <laughs> oh, thanks. How, how are freedom and creativity connected to the nature of language? They're connected to the use of language. We have to distinguish the nature of language from its use. It's a distinction that goes back to Aristotle, who distinguished between what he called possession of knowledge and use of knowledge. Interestingly, this distinction was forgotten for a couple of thousand years. It was, it was very hard to find any reference to that idea. So when I've talked about the Galilean challenge, you know, the early modern scientific revolution, which was astonished by the fact that we can do what we're now doing, that humans are capable of constructing an infinite number of thoughts and uh, in their minds, and even somehow uh, allowing others who have no access to our minds to know their innermost workings. But they never distinguished between production and knowledge. You go to the now famous aphorism of Humboldt that language is infinite use of finite means. Notice that it's use, not internal knowledge. That distinction, and of course, structuralism just wiped it all out, didn't even ask the questions. Um, it's a, the structuralist behaviorist period is a kind of a break in a couple of thousand years of tradition which regarded language as uh, basically a system of thought. Uh, correctly, I think we're getting back to that. When you get to the uh, discovery in mid 20th century of basically the mathematical theory of computation, that allows you to formulate the, clearly the distinction between what you know and what you use. Uh, it's, uh, you, what your internal system is just what you know. To produce something, you have to have two steps. One of them is to pick one of the thoughts and decide to express it. The second is to go through the um, mechanical operations of getting everything to work. If you look at modern psycholinguistics, it doesn't deal with production. It may deal with the mechanical part but mostly it's a theory of perception, a parsing perception and so on, which makes sense. That's an, uh, an input output system. So you know how to study it. It's basically a reflex and you can figure out how to study it. Production, you can't study precisely because of what you asked, the creative part of language use. How do we find the thought that we want to express? Uh, nobody has any idea. It's a total mystery. There's nothing to say about it. Uh, that was basically what Descartes was referring to when he established a second substance, res cogitans, thinking substance, something that's out of the material world that uh, links somehow to the material world and uh, does have this uh, property that in Cartesian terms, we can 
speak appropriately to situations, but not compelled by them. We, for example, I could start talking about the weather, perfectly free to do that. Wouldn't be appropriate to the situation, so I wouldn't do it. But how do we find thoughts that are from the infinite array of thoughts that we have in our mind that are appropriate to situations, but not compelled, maybe, uh, maybe uh, in, driven by the situation somehow, but not compelled. That's the creative aspect of language use, and we have nothing to say about it. No one's ever had anything to say. Uh, we're as much in the dark as uh, they were in classical Greece or in Babylonia, wherever they first started talking about these things. So given all that we do know about language, how might the light that this sheds on human nature give us hope? Well, there, there have, I was, I was about 45 years ago, I guess I was, the first time I was asked, it's been many times since, this question, uh, what's the relation between what we know about language and human nature? And uh, I was asked to write an article with the title, Language and Freedom. I started the article by saying some things I can say about language, some things I can say about freedom, but the word and is puzzling. Uh, what do they have to do with each other? Well, I think what they have to do with each other is something that in fact was discussed in the, in, during the Enlightenment by people like uh, Wilhelm von Humboldt, for example, the leading figure of the Enlightenment, one of the founders of classical liberalism, uh, also a great linguist. Uh, the, um, uh, he wrote about the link, the possible link between the two, and it's right back to the creative aspect of language use. He argued that a fundamental feature of human nature is the is to be free to develop your own capacities without external constraints. And society should be organized so that any external constraints are illegitimate unless they can somehow justify themselves. That cuts a pretty broad swath when you think about it. Uh, anything from patriarchal families to imperial powers and a lot in between. It either has to have a justification or be dismantled. That's part of the fundamental character of human existence. It's need to, it's a justified demand to be able to flourish freely. The way Humboldt put it kind of metaphorically, he said, uh, he said, if an artisan produces a beautiful work on command, we may admire what he did, but we despise what he is, namely a tool in the hands of others, not a free human being. And that he generalizes to the basic tenets of classical liberalism, and it's also right at the core of human language. Are the two connected? As I said, it's all a mystery. 
Do you feel that your work in linguistics has informed your work in political analysis or vice versa? And if so, how? About it at the level of what we're now discussing, not in any explicit way. You can, you can have any political view and any linguistic view, they're not in contradiction. Let's let's come back to political views um, for a little while, if we could, Noam. Um, you you've offered again, <clears throat> excuse me. You've offered again here today um, a critique of state-sponsored capitalism. I, I imagine you could offer one of state-sponsored socialism as well. And, and and yet you've also spoken of a potentially positive uh, role for the state to play in protecting human freedom and and promoting redistributive justice. Can, can, can you talk about the difference you would see between neo-democracy and, and genuine democracy? Well, all of the socio-economic political systems that have existed in the last couple of hundred years since the decline of feudalism, they've all been one or another form of state capitalism. Uh, they have some reliance on the market, uh, some reliance on private ownership and decisions, but a large role in uh, state intervention to set the framework for the market and to uh, uh, protect the population from the destructive ravages of the market. If the market is let to run free, we're all dead. It's a, it's a death sentence. And that's been understood, maybe not in Chicago, but it's been understood by the business world, uh, the masters as Adam Smith called them, uh, they've understood it always. They've never permitted capitalism because they know it would destroy everything. So they've always called for a large state role in uh, maintaining their own privilege and, and profit. Uh, actually, this is discussed by Adam Smith in 1976, eight, 1776, sorry. Um, he pointed out that uh, the masters of mankind, as he called them, in his day, that would be the merchants and manufacturers of England, said the merchants of the masters of mankind are dominate the state and they make sure that state intervention is in their interest. He put it more poetically. He said, uh, they make sure that their own interests are most peculiarly attended to. In other words, the state works for us. However, grievous the effect on the people of England or the victims of what he called the savage injustice of the Europeans uh, elsewhere in the world. He was thinking mostly of England, of course, and it's shameful murderous role in India, which he bitterly condemned, but was to get much worse in later years. Uh, this uh, one of the horror stories of the modern age, but, uh, uh, and it hasn't really changed that much since. Uh, one, it modifies in one respect or another, but it remains true that the masters of mankind who now are 
multinational corporations, uh, huge financial institutions, uh, the masters make sure that state power, by now including international governing institutions like the World Trade Organization, the IMF and so on, uh, they make sure that these uh, governing institutions work in their interests, that their own interests are most peculiarly attended to, however grievous the effect on others. Actually, we saw a very dramatic example of that at Glasgow. It wasn't reported, but it was commented on. Uh, in Glasgow at COP26, you'll recall that John Kerry, the US negotiator was ecstatic about the fact he made a speech, euphoric speech about now we can't lose, we've got the market working for us, we have big business on our side, everything's great, let's march to utopia. He was referring to the statement by uh, the CEO of BlackRock, huge investment firm, Larry Fink, who made a speech saying that we have the investment community, all of us noble people working for the common good. We have $130 trillion sitting in our pocket, which we're now ready to use to overcome the climate crisis. So it's fantastic. Uh, Kerry leaped to the occasion, gave an ecstatic speech about it. Well, one very good political economist, Adam Tooze, scholar at Columbia, uh, wrote an article about it. And he reported all of this, but then he added the footnote that didn't get reported. The footnote from Larry Fink is, we have $132 trillion, which we're perfectly willing to invest in something profitable, and oh, but only if it's done without any risk. That is, if there's a guarantee by the IMF that if there's any loss, we'll be compensated for it. So we're perfectly happy to give you as a gift $132 trillion, $130 trillion, which we can make profit from. And if anything goes wrong, you'll pay for it. So Adam Smith, the masters of mankind are hard at work to ensure that their interests are most peculiarly attended to, no matter how grievous the effect on the rest of the world and on future society, which we will destroy as long as we can. And we'll be happy to help out as long as we can make profit and you assume the risk, okay? That's what's called capitalism. If, if this situation is to be rectified, changed, does education have a role to play in bringing such change about? And, 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 and how might that differ from the role that the educational system plays at present, uh, a system that you have seen up close and personal for many years? Uh, quite a few. Uh, Education can play an enormous role. Just take what we've been talking about. Uh, an educated public would seize on what Adam Tooze just described 
and show right away, this is just another fraud, more robbery, more highway robbery against the public, just like the $50 trillion of, of robbery that we don't talk about. An educated public would know that. Take the bill that's in Congress, Build Back Better bill. I pointed out that the public does not know what's in the bill. They favor its positions. They oppose the bill because they don't know what's in it. Well, the gap there is education. Uh, the education partly is in the educational institutions. Uh, children ought to be taught these things from kindergarten, certainly college. Uh, but they're also in popular organizations. There's a good reason Reagan and Thatcher knew what they were doing when they inaugurated the neoliberal assault against the, the population. You have to provide to ensure that people have no means of defense. If you're gonna carry out highway robbery, you wanna make sure that the victims can't defend themselves. Well, how do they defend themselves? Main way is labor unions. So therefore we have to destroy the labor unions. Go back to 40 years, first days of the Reagan and Thatcher administrations, their first acts were to attack and undermine labor unions, opening using illegal measures like uh, scabs, permanent replacement workers, opening the door to corporations to adopt these measures themselves and crush labor, which has declined radically. Uh, all kinds of reasons, but primarily this. I should say the Democrats went along with it. The Reagan-like Democrats and the Thatcher-like uh, New Labor, they went along with this in their own ways. Uh, but that, and that meant that the major way for people to educate themselves disappeared. Go back to the 1930s again. My own family were immigrants. They were working class, mostly unemployed, uh, but they were in unions. And the unions were not just defending wages, they were cultural centers. They had worker education programs. Just the fact that people could get together and talk to each other that's educational. Uh, and the, many, some of my relatives barely went to school, never even graduated elementary school, but they were quite educated, uh, culturally advanced, uh, discussing uh, the latest concert of the Budapest String Quartet, uh, talking about uh, various uh, uh, schools of psychoanalysis, thinking about the social system and how it should be changed. A lot of this was through the unions. Uh, in fact, there were uh, back in those days when uh, leading scientists, mostly from the Communist Party, uh, were teaching uh, worker education courses. People like Bernal and others, great scientists. Uh, this was considered natural and normal. Well, a lot of all that's disappeared. That's one. And the same has been true in the educational institutions where it's been very conscious. If you look back over the years, 
especially in the 1960s, in uh, response to the growing activism among, among young people, the universities opened up considerably. So take MIT, where I was, uh, early 60s, it was a very reactionary institution, engineering school, people did their work, nobody asked any questions. Uh, by the late 60s, they changed enormously, changed to the point where the whole institute was shut down for two weeks by a student action in defense of a uh, deserter, a Marine deserter, a Marine who said he wanted to desert and protest against the war. The students met with him, uh, made sure he knew what he was doing, understood what, what would happen. He finally, they finally decided to set up a sanctuary in the student center, this kind of thing that was being done in churches in those days. Uh, set up a sanctuary in which some people would stay with him until he's arrested. I was involved. I, I thought it was a ridiculous idea. I didn't think it would work, but they were right. Turned out within a couple of days, practically the whole student body was there. Uh, it was in the student center. Uh, it became a center for two weeks before he was finally arrested uh, of a 24-hour uh, discussions, lectures, uh, rock bands, all the crazy stuff which went on in the 60s, which I couldn't stand, but uh, uh, all of that was happening at a, at a very lively time. Well, that was enough to lead the administration of the Institute to take off officially a full day on which we would, for discussion of the social significance of technological development topic that had never been discussed before. It was devoted to that and a lot of very good things came out of it. Many of them lasting. Groups like Union of Concerned Scientists today, which is an active group, is one of the things that grew out of that, had a major effect on the general tenor of the institution. Well, this kind of thing was happening in various places and it caused a lot of concern among elite circles. There's one book that everyone really ought to, re uh, ought to read. It's called The Crisis of Democracy. It's published by the first publication of the Trilateral Commission. Trilateral Commission are liberal internationalists. In the United States, it's the Carter administration basically, drew almost entirely from them. Europe and Japan, similar groups. So it's the liberal internationalist wing of intellectual society. And the book is worth reading. When it first appeared, I immediately asked the MIT library to buy a dozen copies of it because I figured it was gonna quickly go out of print as soon as anybody noticed it, which in fact is what happened. But at least they had the copies and later it came back into print when people had forgotten so now you can get it. Uh, it's a very interesting book. The crisis of democracy is that there's too much democracy. They said in the 1960s, sectors of the population that are supposed to be passive and obedient began to try to enter the political arena to press their demands, like young people, old people, women, uh, workers, uh, 
what are called special interests. And that's just too much of a burden for the state to deal with. They didn't say it, but there's one interest that they didn't talk about, business interests. That's the national interest, not special interests. So they can do what they like. But all these special interests have to go back to passivity and obedience. And they were particularly concerned about the universities, which they called, I'm quoting now, the institutions responsible for the indoctrination of the young. They weren't doing their job. Uh, that's why you had these young people out in the streets uh, calling for an end to the Vietnam War or women's rights and all this nonsense, you know. Uh, so we have to have better indoctrination, uh, change in the universities. And they said the churches too, they said they're not doing their job, the media aren't doing their job, they're opening up too much. Remember, we're talking about the liberal wing, the left as it's called. Uh, well, that, late, that was the mid 70s. That was part of the cultural basis for the neoliberal assault, which in fact changed the universities a lot. Even university architecture was changed. Uh, it was changed so that new universities were built without public spaces. Uh, nothing like Sproul Hall in Berkeley where students could get together and do things and talk to each other, just paths from here to there, you know. Uh, defunding. State universities are sharply defunded. Uh, shifting of the university system to a business model. So masses of administration, uh, cut back in faculty participation. Uh, it used to be that the provost and the president were picked by the faculty, they were faculty members, just kind of like the chair of a department who you select works for a couple of years and goes back to the faculty, all gone. Now it's all professionalized, layer after layer of dean, sub-dean, you know, secretary of sub-dean, et cetera, et cetera. It's a good book about it by Benjamin Ginsburg, sociologist called The Fall of the Faculty, who documents a lot of this, uh, but I'm sure you've seen it everywhere. But uh, uh, a, a shift to a business model of teaching as cheap as possible. So if you can get an adjunct to teach someone something, that's what we want. Tenured professors waste money. Any businessman will tell you it's better to have an adjunct who, you, who has no rights. Uh, you can pay him nothing. He can't protest. You kick him out at the end of the year. It's much more efficient than these tenured faculty members who keep talking and making trouble and so on. Uh, that's happened all over the world. In England, one of the, the Tory government in England at, at first tried to uh, abandon the so-called Haldane rule. The Haldane rule goes back to the First World War. It's a rule in the British universities. Remember, there were no red bricks then. That meant Oxford and Cambridge. The, uh, uh, the rule was that uh, research grants cannot be influenced by any outside uh, factor other than the quality of the research. So no government pressure, no public pressure, no corporate pressure, just 
whatever is appropriate by on internal standards. Well, the Cameron government tried to withdraw that, did lead to a lot of public pressure. Uh, there's a very good commentary on what was happening to the British universities under the Tories by Stephen Collini. He's a leading commentator on education and other public issues. I think it was in the either the Times Literary Supplement or the London Review of Books a couple of years ago. He reviewed what was going on. He said the Tories are trying to turn first-rate uh, in, uh, first uh, intellectual institutions into third-rate commercial enterprises. And what they were trying to do was to get, say, Oxford, if you want to have a classics department, show that you can sell it on the market. Otherwise, you can't have a classics department. Why should you waste money on that if it doesn't have any market value? Well, that's been pressed, not completely. There's a lot of resistance to it, but it's been pressed to a certain extent. And you see it in American universities too, I presume also Canadian ones, a move to a business model of lean production, cheap, a lot of administration, a lot of control, uh, abandonment of this counterpart to the Haldane rule. So lots of pressure on what kind of research can be done uh, in many ways. Uh, all of that is part of better indoctrination of the young. That's the cultural counterpart of the neoliberal assault, beginning from the liberal wing of the international uh, uh, intellectual elite. Uh, that's a counterpart to neoliberalism that isn't talked about very much, but it bears directly on the question that you're raising. Let me follow up with a sort of a related question. So it's a commonplace that free speech is essential to democracy, but you've often had to point out that defending free speech means defending speech we don't like. So how can media outlets and universities live up to their democratic responsibilities without providing a platform for lies and bigotry? They have to provide that platform and also provide platforms for combating it. So take, be concrete. Suppose uh, somebody you don't like is, gets invited to the university, say uh, somebody who believes that uh, um, blacks have uh, are genetically uh, uh, inferior, okay? Suppose somebody like that says, is invited to give a talk at the university. Well, there are two ways to react. One way is to make sure he can't talk at the university. It's wrong in principle. It's tactically idiotic. It's a gift to the far right. They love it. The person you're banning loves it makes him present himself as a paragon of virtue, you know, wants to speak freely, but these fascist leftists keep him from doing it. Uh, the Trump administration, the Republicans in the United States are running their elections on this. That's the whole CRT business. Uh, you can pick up little pieces here and there, magnify them, uh, pretty soon you have the population outraged because uh, teachers are 
training innocent little white children that because they have white skin, they're brutal Nazi oppressors. Uh, parents get upset, you know, they complain at school boards, uh, they vote for Trump, uh, marvelous. Uh, you're giving them a perfect weapon, which they love. There's another way of doing it. Let the guy come to campus, set up a counter program in which you discuss the views, where they come from, what they mean, what their social background is, discuss their intellectual quality, such as it is. Uh, what you usually find is the person won't even come to campus. And if he does, it's an educational opportunity. That's the right way to respond. Unfortunately, the wrong way is being done too much. And as I say, wrong in principle, a tremendous gift to the right wing. They adore it. It's perfect for them. They can build on little pieces of it and turn it into a mass movement. In fact, it's happening before our eyes. The CRT thing is a perfect example of it. Uh, we should also recognize in the background that so-called cancel culture is not new. It's as old as the hills, but it was always directed against the left. So therefore it was considered perfectly appropriate. You didn't have to bother talking about it. I could give you plenty of examples from my own experience. Actually, I forget whether you were there when my office was vandalized, uh, not during your years. Well, it was what we called the sauerkraut bomber came in and destroyed everything with throwing sauerkraut out of books destroyed. My favorite picture of Bertrand Russell was destroyed and had to replace it. But uh, my mail was held up at uh, the main post office because of death threats. They had to inspect every package. If I was giving talks at MIT, at MIT, I had to have police protection, Cambridge and city police and campus police. Other universities, uh, I had to have police protection the whole time I was on campus. If I was giving one talk on a, a non-tolerated topic, and I was lucky, I, I was protected by the administration. Plenty of people weren't. People were thrown out and so on. Well, that's cancel culture. But as I say, nobody ever cared because it was the appropriate target. Uh, well, uh, now elements of the left are picking that up. Uh, wrong in principle and tactically stupid. So I think universities should take a strict stand on that. Basically, anything goes. You want to tell lies and uh, come up with uh, racist uh, misogyny, whatever it is. Okay, you if you're invited to campus, you can talk, but we'll be there to make sure that you can be heard. But you'll be other those who want to learn the truth about the matter. They'll be heard, and you'll be lost. Uh, this even happens in things like demonstrations. You may recall in about, I forget, maybe 30 years ago or so, the uh, a neo-Nazi group wanted to demonstrate a neo-Nazi demonstration. And they, they picked a town called Skokie, Illinois, 
which happens to be full of Holocaust survivors. So they wanted to parade down the street uh, denying the Holocaust, Nazi slogans and so on. Well, the ACLU supported them, said, yes, they should be allowed to demonstrate. And I, I did too. I thought they should be allowed to demonstrate. Uh, they were uh, given permission to demonstrate. They never came. They knew they were going to get greeted by protests so strong that it would finish them. So they just stayed away. Okay, that's the way to do it. Going back to the uh, the vision of uh, human capacity that we have kind of developed by looking through uh, looking at language, um, if if language isn't some thing out there that individual speakers have only partial knowledge of, but rather every human being has the individual capacity to generate the full range of expressions of their own unique language faculty. What kind of philosophical implications might this have for, for hierarchical domination-based kind of social institutions? Well, what it tells us, as far as we know, that humans are identical in their cognitive capacities. In fact, there's very little genetic variation among humans. Uh, one uh, famous evolutionary biologist, uh, more or less as a joke, said that if you see two squirrels in a tree, they probably have more genetic difference than all humans. He knew that was an exaggeration, but it's not far from the, from the truth. If you find a troop of chimpanzees, 30 chimpanzees, chances are very high. They have much more genetic variation than all humans, all 7 billion of us. Uh, we're very much alike. There are visible differences like skin color. Uh, and if you go, but these were never considered a very much significance until pretty recently. Uh, what's called whiteness was invented pretty much uh, in the period of European imperial colonial, European colonialism, as uh, explorers, starting with, you know, Vasco da Gama, basically 15th, 16th century, started uh, traveling to other, you, you might recall that in the early part of, uh, uh, say, 2000 years ago, 1000 years ago, it was very widely believed that nobody lived south of the equator because they would fall off the earth if they did. So you find that in Augustine and others. When explorers started traveling there to the surprise of educated people, they found lots of creatures of a strange sort that they never knew about. Remember, this was Christian uh, dominated societies and you had to find out which ones of them had a soul. That was very important. If they had a soul, you had to convert them. Uh, if they didn't have a soul, uh, it didn't matter. Uh, either way, whether they had a soul or not, you could exterminate them or turn them into slaves and so on. That's okay. Actually, there was a one of my 
favorite lines from the early enlightenment is by Louis Racine. He's the son of Racine, the great playwright. And he said that there was a lot of debates about whether apes had souls. Orangutans kind of looked like humans. Did they have language? His theory was that they had language, but they were more intelligent than humans. So they were smart enough not to let humans know it. Because if we, if humans knew that they had language, we'd enslave them. So therefore they were just keeping quiet. That's one of the reasons why apes don't speak. But, uh, but these were not jokes. These were serious questions about who has a soul. And uh, at that point, you start getting a development of the concept of whiteness. So there's gotta be some justification for the fact that Europeans travel around the world and brutalize and destroy everything they see. They rob the people, they kill them, they exterminate them, they torture them, they enslave them. Gotta be some justification for this. Well, justification is a superior race. So you have to develop a concept of whiteness and it's a fluid concept. So for example, in the 18th century, Jews weren't considered white. Uh, in the 19th century, Irish weren't considered white. They were semi-white, but not really white. Uh, we see it right now today. Uh, 50 years ago, Hispanics weren't considered white. Now they're being incorporated into whiteness uh, as groups enter the privileged sectors of society. Uh, they become whiter, you know, that's the concept. Um, it's not a biological concept, it's a social concept. Of course, it has some very superficial and marginal biological aspects like you know, your skin color and so on, the nature of your hair, but uh, this is so peripheral to human life, it's non-existent. As I say, for most of human history, nobody even paid attention to it, but uh, there's a few references, but very wasn't much of an issue. It came a huge issue with imperialism, uh, and it remains a major issue today. Uh, the there's a lot of talk about identity politics and how terrible it is, but the most extreme form of identity politics is white supremacy. Nothing else even comes close. And that's, uh, it may destroy the world. In the United States, white supremacy is a very significant factor in the rise of Trumpism and the proto-fascist Republican Party who are exploiting it for all it's worth. Uh, chances are they'll come back into power. That may be the end of human civilization, literally, if only because of climate denialism. Well, that's the force of white supremacy, the main form of identity politics. Uh, and it's deep in Western culture, find it all over. Uh, but it has an interesting history. The, uh, it was, a. Uh, were you at McGill? I forgot. No, okay, well at McGill back, uh, back in your day as a student, I guess, it was a great historian of philosophy, Harry Bracken, a uh, friend of mine who ended up in Arizona, <laughs> left, he left 
Canada because he couldn't stand the uh, insistence on uh, forcing bilingualism on everyone. So in Quebec, you know, he got sick and tired. He was a strong exponent of freedom of speech and kind of real uh, serious leftist. This was too much for him, so he just left. But um, he once wrote some interesting articles on empiricism and rationalism and racism. Everybody hated them, but I thought they were pretty sensible. What he pointed out is that the rationalist tradition posed a certain limited, very limited barrier against racism because you either had a soul or you didn't. Uh, that was a dichotomy, no, no halfway. If you had a soul, you're human, you're entitled to all human rights. The empiricist tradition uh, categorized people by their uh, observable properties, which meant you could be partially human. Uh, you had a dark skin, but not a totally black skin. So it therefore opened the door for possible manifestations of racism that were blocked by the more rigid uh, soul versus non-soul distinction, which is probably had some role in the easy rise of racism. Um, he was castigated for this, of course, but it's worth thinking about. Um, and uh, several articles about. But the invention of whiteness is a very interesting uh, issue. There's by now pretty good scholarship on it. It was an invented concept and it followed closely and in very natural ways from uh, uh, European imperialism, what Adam Smith called the savage injustice of the Europeans. Uh, he was writing at the very beginning of it, got much worse. Uh, England, uh, Canada, the United States uh, enriched themselves by horrible, monstrous activities uh, in England, in the case of England, by the destruction of India. India in the 17th century was the richest part of the world probably 25% of global GDP, advanced technology, uh, arts, uh, culture. England was a sort of barbarian outpost, but England had the guns. And the East India Company with guns and British force behind it was able to destroy India, to rob it, to steal its higher technology, to deindustrialize it, uh, the wealthy families of England, many of them derived from robbery of England, of, of India, the Pitt family, many others. Uh, that went on through the, into the 19th century. Uh, after that, England found a better way of robbing and destroying, namely by becoming the major narco-trafficker in world history, uh, conquered large parts of India in order to grow opium, which they could force into the Chinese market at gunpoint, destroy China, enrich England. Uh, so between, uh, in fact, British wealth actually began with piracy in the Elizabethan age. 
Sir Francis Drake and other great figures were pirates. Uh, they robbed Spanish ships, stole gold and so on. Uh, that was a large part of the wealth of uh, Elizabethan England. Uh, so you start with piracy, move on to massive destruction, robbery, uh, on to narco-trafficking, you get a very rich country. Uh, but you had to have justification for all of this and whiteness and uh, white supremacy was a substantial cultural part of it. All of this incidentally was during the period of the enlightenment, which had several aspects, positive and negative. Well, that's the kind of history you're not allowed to teach. Uh, the so-called 1776 project in the United States set up by the Trump administration, now a Republican state. These things, anyway, it was never barely taught anyhow, but now we have to make sure it never gets taught. We have to go back to proper indoctrination of the young. <laughs>